I don't want to take up much of her time, but for those of you who have been with us at Mexico Caravan Ministries the last two years, um, you've heard from Michelle Gennaro, and I asked her to come because um, she has, more than almost anybody I've ever met or heard from, lived out our theme this year, which is count the cost, the risk is right. So Michelle is with Africa Inland Mission International as a mobilizer and as a speaker, and I'm going to let her tell her story and challenge us from God's word this morning, so please welcome her with me. Good morning. Hi up there. It's good to be here. I I just want to start by like blaming Andrew. Um, yeah. Double whammy, Brad and Michelle, in one morning. Uh, raise your right hand, Brad. Brad and I did not know that we were coming to the same place until, like, for me it was a couple days ago. Um, so we did not conspire together. Which is a testimony to the fact that the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and that the words that Brad said and the words that I say are Jesus's words. They're God. It's God's truth, and um, and that's why I feel compelled to apologize to you ahead of time. These are not easy things to hear, and so let me pray and ask God to take over this morning. That these wouldn't be my words, but His. Pray with me, Lord Jesus. We do thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you that uh, you go before us. Uh, you hem us in behind and before, and while you do ask us to surrender everything uh, for you, you're worthy, altogether good, and you are so faithful to keep every promise you make to us. And so with that, Lord, I ask that you'd take over, that you'd speak through me, that these would be your words. And especially, Lord, I pray that you would open the ears of this church, your body, your bride, open their eyes and ears to know you and to count the cost and indeed, Lord, to lay it down for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So one line that stood out to me from what Brad said was that Jesus takes our lives over. And Jesus did that in my life. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't know Christ until I was 20. I uh, came down to Point Loma, Nazarene University, as someone who didn't even know Christ, but I had good taste. I knew once I visited that campus that it was gorgeous. I was lured by the ocean and followed my best friend, who was a pastor's kid, to Point Loma, Nazarene University. It was there about halfway through my experience that I met Jesus. And that same year, when I was 20, I met my husband, Chris. So I met Christ and Chris in the same year. Uh, Chris had written in the front of his Bible, I want to be a missionary. And I didn't. (laughs) Actually, I didn't really even have an understanding of what it meant to be a missionary. All I knew was that you went somewhere scary, you gave up everything and you went somewhere scary and and why would I want to do that? I had had one 
Now, it's just laughable for me to tell you, but I had one move when I was a junior in high school from Northern California to Southern California, and it was traumatic for me. With two weeks' notice, my parents moved, and they moved out to a a ranch in the middle of nowhere. Well, it was middle of nowhere, but now it's Temecula. Um, (laughs) At the time, it was middle of nowhere. Um, And that was traumatic for me. So I said what you should not. And I said that I would never move when my children, uh, when I had children that I would never move. But I married Chris and uh, Chris wanted to be a missionary. Uh, He also, there was a, a, a saving factor, I thought, and that was that Chris wanted a lot of children. And I thought for sure, like we'd start having kids and, and then, um, that would kind of go by the wayside. Um, But as God would have it, uh, right after we were married in 1989, we started going to Claremont Emanuel, the same church where Brad and Beth attend. And I was literally raised up in that church. And I was raised up in the word to understand um, God's heart and God's heart for the nations. And as I grew up in that, then I began to understand better uh, why I was made. And we did have a lot of children. We had one, two, three, four. When our fourth was two, we knew we had more love to give. And we started going short-term and serving uh, with an, a ministry, an orphan ministry in Uganda. And that is where, well, jo- my son Joseph's here with me. Um, he's number five. And on the same day, uh, we met Dwayne, who's number six. So our family grew. Um, It took us two and a half years to bring Joseph and Duane home through the Ugandan legal system. And it didn't take away Chris's desire to serve the Lord as a missionary. Um, What it did was I began to, my heart began to change. You know, one of God's promises is in Philippians 2.13. That God works in our heart to will and to act according to his purpose. And so that's what was happening in me. That as we were going, even short term, just on trips, it wasn't that we were even doing missions, so to speak. We were just doing compassionate works. Um, But that is what God used to make me willing to surrender everything. Now, by that time, we were in our 40s. And we had six children. But... I'm slow, I guess. So it took that time for God to do that work in my heart until I was willing. Chris was more than willing. I remember in 2004, it was our second trip to Uganda, and we sat in Kampala Pentecostal Church uh, in the place where all the white visitors sat, right in the front. And um, (laughs) we're both praying fervently. Chris was praying because when we landed in Uganda the first time, he said out loud, I feel like I was born in the wrong country. I want to live and die in Africa. And so I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) And so my prayer life increased. And I remember we're sitting in the... (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So... We're sitting in the front and praying, both of us praying fervently. And I didn't know until after that Chris was praying, 
God, don't make me leave. And I was praying, God, don't make me stay. So I don't stand up here before you with some fancy call to be a missionary because I'm not. And, and Brad said it also, like, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. But as I prayed fervently, even the next year, I was praying that same prayer. And I was crying out to God because Chris was becoming more and more determined. Those passages that Brad taught from were challenging us. And, and he was ready. We had counted the cost. He was ready. And I was crying out that God would show me that this was not my husband's desire for a more meaningful job. It was not my husband's desire to just find greener pastures and have more purpose to his vocation. But I was crying out to God and I was saying, God, please show me this is you and not him. And in a voice that was not my own, in almost, in like the most clear I've ever heard God speak to me, he gave me my call. And it was get on board. It is still my call today, you guys. And it's your call too. Get on board. The first passage I want to take you to is in Isaiah 43. And I challenge you to put your name in these. Uh, You know, I'm not a theologian. What I know with all my heart, though, is that this is the living and active word of God. And even though this is the Old Testament, and this is not written to Joseph Gennaro, necessarily in 2019, this is for us or it wouldn't be here. This is so that you know the heart of God. This is so that you know his plans for you. This is so you know his character and how he works and how much he loves you and what he desires of you and what plans he has for you. And so with that, I would, I would challenge you to put your name here. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom. Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Skip down. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, he says in verse 8, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their little G gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. 
and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. No God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I even I am the Lord and apart from me, there's no savior. I've revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes. And from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? And then later on in verse 25, it says this very challenging thing. I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. You see, God made you for a purpose. And I, and not only that, he forgave you and your sins for his own sake. I know that. And, and again, I, I, all of this is for me too. This is all things that God is. These are things that God has taught me and challenged me with Michelle. I didn't just forgive you so that you can sit in that nice church and worship me and have your little life and say, you're never going to leave. That's not why I made you and forgave you. You're mine. You're my witness. I made you and I saved you for my glory, not your own. And that's what he says to you today. It's true for every single one of us, not just for some of us who have made that choice to get on board and go somewhere else. And so those are the things that God was challenging me with. Now, at the time, I was the children's pastor at Claremont Emanuel. Brad and I were actually serving together. He was the missions pastor and I was the children's pastor. And I remember it, it all was, it all flooded back to me when Brad was up here speaking and I'm back there kind of like chuckling because when these passages that Brad mentioned to you this morning, were going through uh, like guys, I was pouring over this. I was a mother of six children, a daughter, an aunt, a sister. And I'm, I want to tell you when you make the choice to get on board and you decide you're going to go. There are voices in your head and there are voices in your ear that say, what are you doing? This is irresponsible. You're too old. You can't learn a language. You own a home. You're in full-time ministry. How are you going to retire? This is irresponsible. How can you leave your parents? What if something happens? And I'm pouring over God's word, looking and looking and looking for a reason not to go. I would come to work, honestly, and I would come in to staff meeting and I would just be a complete wreck. And I would just break down crying. I'm like, I can't find anything in here that says I shouldn't go. I wanted desperately to find something that would say, okay, you know, you're too old or yeah, don't sell your house. Don't give up everything. It doesn't say that anywhere in here. And then my husband was super black and white. He's like, I don't see that anywhere in here. 
Why should we keep our house and not sell it? What does it say in here? It says, give it all up. Why wouldn't we do that? And I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, but we did it. And in 2011, one of the funniest questions people ask me is, um, did you take your kids? Yes. We took our children because we were moving to Africa. <laughs> so we did sell our house. We did get rid of everything. Um, I remember the morning that we left uh, San Diego. It was, well, where God, you know, when God calls you, he does keep his promise to be with you and to provide for you. Like he does that. So we sold our house. We signed the papers at 7.30 p.m. the night before we got on the plane to go to Africa. Right when we needed it. I mean, no sooner. So our friends from church ended up finishing up, um, cleaning up our house and getting rid of things. But I'll never forget that morning. It was before the sun was up. 4.30 in the morning, our friends came to pick us up. And we had... 19 totes and suitcases for a family of eight that we took to Africa. And uh, we got everybody up. We get in. And I remember pulling away from the curb and leaving that house. And honestly, we didn't leave thinking, when are we going to come back? When you have, like, God's word in your head and Brad Buser's words in your ear... Like, we had a long-term plan. Long-term. We weren't coming back. Well, maybe for visits, but we weren't coming back. And so we pulled away from the curb, and I remember I couldn't even look back. I couldn't even, like, physically look back. But you know what? It's interesting. Once we got to the airport, I never wanted to look back. What I learned is it's so hard to leave but it's great to go I know that that sounds weird but once you like step off the cliff once you surrender it and you let it go and you leave once you do that like you know rip the band-aid off really fast it's kind of like that you just like do it then the going is altogether different. And I know that sounds weird. So we went, and um, this I'm cutting this story way short. We went to a little place in rural Africa called Mudamong. It's in Lesotho. It's a very rural village. Missionaries had been there before. Um, the Basutu people are not an unreached people group. They are least reached there, but they're not unreached. The gospel had come there, but it hadn't penetrated. Because what had happened was they got church, they got the idea of church, but they didn't get Christ. And so even though they had a Bible in their language, they didn't read it. Um, And they would have church, but they would go read from this little like prayer book. Every single word that they would go through in the church service was from that little book. So it had not pierced their hearts. 
the open door for the gospel in that place was for someone to teach sewing. And my husband had been a designer and dressmaker for his whole career. From the time he was 10, he sewed. And that's what he wanted to use for God, which is like impossible and crazy. Like how, what would you do for God sewing? Which it actually derailed him for most of his adult life because that desire made no sense. And there was no way you could do that to build a kingdom of God. But in the place of Mudamong, there was a need for someone to teach sewing at a vocational skills training center. And that was the open door for the gospel. Now, we knew that we had to know their language. We had to know what they believed. We had to have credibility with them and, and a friendship with them. And that trust had to be built. We, we knew. And so we set out to learn the language. And we got to about level two. We had to get to level two before Chris could even teach sewing. And, um, and we did that. And so after a year, Chris began teaching sewing. And we continued to build relationships in that community. And then uh, about 19 months in, Chris had flu-like symptoms. And he, it started with just like aches and cramps and then kind of like bone pain. He thought like, oh man, it's so weird. Like, I don't know, do I have arthritis? Something's not right. I'm in a lot of pain. And then he um, eventually, like after a couple days of flu symptoms, then he couldn't swallow. And um, so I kind of evacuated, basically. We were about five and a half hours from the nearest hospital. So I packed up our Land Rover and the kids, and I packed up for about a weekend's time uh, because I figured he was dehydrated and he 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 needed to get medical help and Um, so packed up the Land Rover and drove him out the five and a half hours to the nearest hospital. When we got there, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. His his condition was uh, becoming more serious. He was starting to have seizures, and they were not controllable. He was exhausted. He hadn't slept in like four nights, and um, he was begging for rest. And so, um, so they did induce a coma. After... Being in about in four hospitals in 24 hours, we had found a private hospital in Bloemfontein, South Africa, that was like Western standard medical care. Uh, he was receiving very good care um, there in that place. Um, they induced coma. After about a week, they found that he had encephalitis, uh, which is an infection in the lining of your brain. And he received treatment for that, the same treatment that you would receive here in in the States. Um, But it was encephalitis that that took Chris home. And he did pass away. On uh, six years ago, on February 16th. And there I was. My long-term plans shattered. I don't know how to sew and I don't so therefore I couldn't teach sewing Um, we had no electricity no running water I had uh, four of my kids I was homeschooling and so uh, so I had to leave the village and in my mind still to this day it's really easy to, to question God and his timing 
because we were there with long-term plans to bring the gospel to that place. And we knew we we were trained. Like we knew you don't go in somewhere short term. You go in with that long view. We have, I mean, again, I was raised up to know these things. And so being drugged from that place was extremely painful. Now, it's only in hindsight that God has unpacked and in, through his mercy that I've been able to see because he's shown me that God has a strategy that is not necessarily ours. It's not, I promise, it's not going to be the one that you pick. I'm sure of it. Um, he tells us about it in John 12. So if you turn there with me. You see, you probably already know this about God, but his ways are not our ways. And he doesn't do things that we would necessarily do or understand because he has this big picture view. He has big picture plans and he has an eternal view of things, of our little, little tiny lives and of all the nations that eventually will be worshiping there at the throne with him. He can see the whole view. We can't. So with that in mind, he does things differently than what we would do. When I stood at Chris's bedside and he was gone, only his body remained. Well, let me back up. When he went into a coma, uh, I was thinking this and remembering I wanted to share this with you. When Brad was speaking, I was, rem- I was reminded of, you know, yeah, we gave up our things, sold our house. We gave up all that. And like I said, I never looked back. And, and just so you know, like hear it from me, like I don't regret that. I don't regret any of it. None of it. I do it again. That was like... Nothing in hindsight. But I can tell you one thing. When my husband was in a coma and I knew he was dying, I wasn't willing to give that up. And I remember on the way to the hospital this one time, the social worker asked, asked my, so my colleagues were there with me helping care for the children. And I was going back to the hospital, back and forth to the hospital. And one of my colleagues um, said, okay, the social worker called, she wants you to come to the hospital. And I, I was like panicked. I was like, oh, great. I thought I was afraid that he had died. And um, this was like only one weekend. He was in a coma for like three and a half weeks. And um, we're on our way to the hospital. I'll never forget my, my colleague, the regional executive officer of our organization in Africa was driving me. And I was like, it was one of those like prayers of, I don't know what you would call it. Like, and I was saying to God, I gave you everything I have. Everything. You can't take him. You can't have him. Don't take him. But he did. And you know why he did it. I don't, I don't have to ask this question anymore. And I'm going to tell you so that 
you are willing to even give this up. Look in John 12. You see, God has this death strategy. And the truth of God is that he brings life from death. Death isn't the end for us. And life from death is an eternal picture that he wants the nations to see. Look in John 12 there. Um, Jesus is explaining why he had to die. And so he tells the disciples, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. You see, God knew, and we had only just learned after not even two years there, we did know that um, I really need a tissue. Can someone get me a tissue? Um, What we learned after only a short amount of time was that, thank you, what we learned was that the, the Basutu people in our village, they believed in Jesus. Like they knew, they knew the name Jesus. But what they believed was that Jesus was the white man's savior. Because they, they saw missionaries come and go. And they saw um, missionaries, actually our, our colleague before us who built the house we lived in, he was bitten by a venomous snake and almost died, but was airlifted out and went, you know, off to where they couldn't see him. And then he came back healed. So Jesus is clearly to this. I'm telling you in their mind, in their worldview, Jesus is the white man's savior. White man doesn't die. All of our people are dying, dying, dying. Like I can't even describe the amount of death we saw in that short time we lived there. And. And that was their worldview. When Chris died, something happened. What they realized, and it was the verse, God, know his word. That's how he speaks to you. When they were saying that Chris died for them, and I was correcting them, Jesus died for you. And they're like, no, we know what you had. Because even by that time, they had smartphones that they would charge with one solar panel and a car battery. So they, um, they knew what we had and left. And they said, but you came here and you lived with us. And, and then he died. And God took me to the verse, there's no greater love than one would lay down his life for his friends. And now there's no church there, no church in the village anymore. Notice I went like that. There's no church. There is and there are Christ followers in that place. You see that God brings life from death. That when we're willing to give ours away, 
that he uses it in a powerful way. He wants to do that in your life too. And he says, die to self. Die to self. Lay it down. Lay it down. When I was counting the cost, these are, and I pulled out a couple of the passages for you to share with you this morning. One of them is in Matthew 10. And these are the ones um, that I was telling you about. I would come into staff meeting and I would just be crying and crying and um, wrestling. In Matthew 10, starting in, in verse 37, Jesus is saying, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I'm here to tell you and to testify I didn't lose my life. But I did lose the life of the person I loved most. And I can testify to you that I wouldn't do anything differently. That I was changed, forever changed by that event in my life. My life's kids were forever changed. My kids' lives were forever changed. But also, those people in the village whose lives were eternally changed, that's worth living and dying for, you guys. What are we living for? If we're, if it's true that we are made and that our sins are even forgiven for His sake, what are we living for? And I would much rather stand here before you and say, yes, my husband lost his life. It was, it has been, and not was, like, it, it has been the most painful journey of my life. But it does not define me. I'll tell you what defines me. What defines me is that I was made on purpose by a God who chooses to not only save me, but he chooses this crummy, like sinful, wacky, unique, weird person, me, to live out my life to bring him glory. And guys, he is altogether worthy. That is what kept me going. That is what continues to keep, keep me going. He is worthy of all of it. Another passage that I want to take you to is in Matthew 19. There are tons of... T- of tough things in this passage. Um, and I'll just like touch on them and give you homework. I'm a teacher by vocation, so I don't have any trouble giving you homework. You can go back and read all of Matthew 19 later. 
Um, but these are some hard things Jesus is saying. In verse 21, he's saying, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Sell your possessions, give them to the poor, get rid of stuff. In America, those things are hard for us. And he's telling us, truly, I, this is verse 23. Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then there are promises. And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When I was teaching, I, I would say, When God says all, he means all. All things are possible. So that when you get down to the verses in uh, following in in verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve, he's speaking to the disciples, twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother. And this only, this word only stood out to me when I was, as when I was widowed. Because I, there's this whole pity party that you can have. You're the only guest, but there's a huge pity party that you can have when you're a widow. Because you look out at other people um, who are making sacrifices and they're doing huge things and, but they have someone there. So it's really easy to have this whole pity party for yourself. This stood out to me. Look at where it says, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Guys, God doesn't send you out And tell you these challenging things and say, go on, go give up everything. You're on your own. No, the last part of the great commission says, I am there with you always, even to the very end of the age. He promises that he goes before you, that nothing is going to overcome. Look back at Isaiah 43. He promises that he's going to be with us and carry us. And he does. He does. And that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. Please listen to him. Obey him. When he tells you to do something, get on board. If it's challenging or painful or it means sacrifice, take a deep breath and and do it. And, and if there's one prayer that I have, it's that you can learn what I've learned this way, that you can learn it today. I had to learn it through that profound loss. And, and I can stand here in front of you today having learned these eternal lessons. But I learned them a really hard way. Hear it from me. Even with this outcome, I would do it again because Jesus is worthy and knowing that there are people who are there 
for eternity because we obeyed, it's worth it. It's worth it. That's worth living for. The stuff, no. The stuff, it it decays. I have no regrets. Matter of fact, it's funny because now I'm back in the States and people are like bringing me my stuff back. (laughs) They're like, oh, never thought you'd be back, but you are. Do you want this clock? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what to say because, you know, you leave, you don't look back at that stuff. God gives you glimpses of eternity. Sorry, Lauren, I'm going to embarrass you maybe this morning. But I came here, and I often do this. I I didn't realize Brad was speaking, so, you know, I've known Brad and Beth for most of my adult life, and, you know, I didn't even know they were going to be here. And then I I didn't uh, do any research to see who goes to this church. So I'm sitting back there, and Lauren walks by, and I... I have to tell you that God gives you these eternal pictures sometimes. And his promise that when we leave things behind that he won't that we won't fail to receive rewards and blessing. It's not necessarily material, it's eternal. That when we do that we get this amazing eternal vision. That's what we get rewarded with. So that when I see Lauren walk down the aisle, I get this like flashback of Lauren when she was young and I barely knew her and she served in the orphanage where Joseph and Dwayne were. And the the baby she was assigned to hold and nurture while she was volunteering there was my son, Dwayne. And here I am, Garden Grove, California. I bumble up here with my message prepared and I sit there And God gives me this eternal view of life. That is a reward worth living for. I want to close with Psalm 139, which my adult kids tease me about this because this has been this passage. And again, I'll give you some more homework. You can read the whole thing. Um, later at home, and I'd encourage you to memorize it, to highlight it in your Bible. These promises, you can, you can just stake your life on these. Psalm 139 says, and I, already, I prayed it earlier. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then in verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Guys, God knows the number of your days. It may be like 46 years worth, like Chris had. It may be more or it may be less. We don't know. The challenging question I want to ask for you, ask you today is you have this one life, the certain number of days. 
Will you cling to that life? Will you cling to those days and pray for stagnant safety? Or will you count the cost, take a deep breath, find Jesus all together worthy, and will you spend those days for him and for his glory? That's what we all have to ask ourselves. Will you spend those days for his glory? Amen.